Well, good afternoon. Good to see you here at the EU public meeting. My name is Rowan Kemp. I haven't met you before. I uh, lead the staff team that work alongside the EU here on campus. I'm glad you can take some time out to join us today to go, to go where university students usually fear to tread. I'm not talking about the general lecture theatre. I'm talking about the topic of predestination and election. This is a topic where uni usually university students, they look at it with much fear and trepidation. Uh, myself included, I remember many years ago chatting with a friend who is not a follower of the Lord Jesus, unfortunately. Um, and I was chatting with him and he said, well, look, why should I choose to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ since, after all, don't you believe that God has predestined everything so he's decided whether or not I'm going to be a believer or not. So I guess, really, what point is there in me making a decision? He's worked it all out. Whatever he says, that's going to happen. So my response is, oh, look, it's not really like that. I pretty much denied this truth from God's word in the name of proclaiming Jesus to people so they might become his followers. I denied the truth to try to get them to believe the truth. Not normally a good strategy. <laughs> In fact, it was a month and a half later or so that I sort of realised, you know, that, that, was just, that was just wrong. It's not loving to keep the truth from people. It's not honouring to God to not share, be, be truthful about what he's revealed. So I had to go back to my friend and said, um, you know that conversation we had? Uh, I wasn't straight up with you. So let me be straight up with you. This is what I think the Bible has to say. This is very annoying, isn't it, this? So let's get rid of that. So I was straight up with him and had to say, this is what the Bible really has to say and let's, let's try to understand it as best we can together. So what I want to try to do in the next, let's see, how long have we got? I have 27 minutes. 27 minutes to deal with this topic <laughs> of the challenge of God's sovereignty. Why are we looking at this today? Because in the EU... Throughout this year we've been coming back to look at the book of Romans on again, off again and we're, we're looking at Romans chapter 9 today, that's where we're up to and that is one of the key passages in the New Testament if you want to understand this topic. So I thought we would take this moment to, to pause and just think about what this chapter has to say on this particular topic. Then next week we'll come back and look at all of sort of Paul's uh, argument in chap chapters 9 through 11 and then we'll move on through the rest of Romans over these last few weeks of the semester. That's the plan. So before we launch into that, why don't I just pray for us all that we would have a mind to understand what God has revealed. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have given us your son Jesus and you have given us your word in scripture and we pray that you would grant us minds to understand and the humility to accept your truth as you have revealed it to us. We pray it, Lord, because we know that only in embracing your truth do we have real freedom and real life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your uh, outline there, you can see a very detailed outline I provided for you. No, yours is blank. Guess what? You need to write down lots of stuff today because I'm going to power. I'm just... Keep up with me. Okay. Because <laughs> we've got no time, so we're just going for it. Okay? Here we go. So, I've already talked to you about an uncomfortable doctrine. 
Hand up if you feel like this Christian doctrine of predestination, election, if you know what this is, if you've been around Christian circles, you may or may not be a Christian. Hand up if you find that a bit difficult, a bit uncomfortable. Excellent, good, you're like me. Here we go then. Right. Romans chapter 9. Paul's flow of thought as we hit Romans chapter 9. You can't just take it in isolation. We need to understand what, what has brought the Apostle Paul to this particular point that he wants to talk about this particular issue. So, what's just gone on? Well, in chapter 8, we just reached a particular high point. In fact, many people, when they preach or talk through Romans, they get to the end of chapter 8 and think, what a glorious high point, let's just finish there. <laughs> 9 to 11, those chapters, bit difficult. We'll jump into chapter 12, that's nice and practical. Right? The problem is, he does reach a great high point at the end of chapter 8. What's that great high point? He says, he's been talking about God's astounding love for those who are in Christ Jesus. You might know those passages, they're very well known. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing in all creation. If God is for us, who will be against us? This great high point, if you're in Christ Jesus, the message being, All the promises of God come to you because you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To you comes the adoption of sonship. To you comes the blessing of the Spirit, which is the the new covenant promise of the blessing of the Spirit. To you comes all of God's promises. To you comes the new covenant. This is this great high point. But that for Paul, he doesn't stop there. For him, he knows that raises a problem. The problem is, those promises, they were made to God's old covenant people, the nation of Israel. I just said to you, they come true for those who are in Christ Jesus. What about the old covenant people of Israel, the Jews? That's exactly where he goes. It's exactly the right question. So what does he say? Okay. What about the people of Israel? Romans 9, 1 to 5. You can, you can read it there, what he says. He says, verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience concerns, confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs, you see him saying, all those things I've just said are true of those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, that belonged to them. And he said, he's not talking about this as an abstract area of theology. This is not just sort of an interesting intellectual exercise for him. He says, I have unceasing anguish in my heart as I talk to you about this. So pained am I that my own people, the nation of Israel, have not received these promises that I wish I was cut off from Christ if it meant they could be saved. Can you say that about anyone? I wish I was cut off from Christ facing the the almighty wrath of God if if it meant that they, that person, those people could be saved. There's no anti-Semitism here. There is a deep, deep love for his people, coming from the Apostle Paul. In fact, what a Jesus-like thing to say, I wish I could be cut off if it meant they could be saved. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus did? 
This is the Apostle. This is his unceasing anguish for those who have been not received the blessing of these promises. So, what then is his answer? What then is his answer? Well, the first, the first immediate question, once you get the picture, is, well, does this mean that somehow God's word, God's promise has failed? Like, he made these promises to these people, but they've come true for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does it mean that somehow God's word didn't come true? That raises all sorts of questions about God's word and about God's character. So, this is the first question. And his first response there in verse 6, you can see it there, it is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not because they are descendants, no, sorry, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. And so he's talking about going back to the forefather of the Jewish people, the Israelite nation, Abram, Abraham. He had two sons. He had Isaac and Ishmael. And he says, no, the promise, God's promise, wasn't to all of Abraham's descendants. It was just to Isaac. Right? So the answer is, no, God did not make his promises to all of those descendants from Abraham, to all of national Israel. It's only to some. You can see the key thing he says there is verse 8. Verse 8 of chapter 9, he says, in other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Okay? Now, the, at that point, you, think, you know what? That's a pretty good answer. It wasn't to all of or national Israel. It was just to those who received the promise. Those are the ones. You think, oh, okay. All right then. The problem with Paul is he's not like me. See, when I was confronted with a difficult truth, difficult question, I just wanted to give a simple answer that hopefully would pacify the question. Paul's not like that, thanks be to God. Paul actually gives you the truth and then says, you know what, that's not all the truth. Here's the bigger, the bigger part of the truth. Even though that pours fuel onto the fire. Even though you go, okay, I was happy with your first answer, now you've told me that next thing. Now I'm really cranky. That makes it worse, not better. But Paul is unashamed of the truth. He's unashamed of this God and who he is and what he's revealed. So he gives his first answer, but then he goes on. He goes on. In fact, he says, he doesn't just deal with Abraham, and he, he then picks up on Isaac and says, Isaac married Rebekah. They had, she had twins, Jacob and Esau. But look at what he says about that in verse 11. He says, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, namely that it is not by works but by him who calls, Rebekah was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. So what he says is, you know what? The way it works is that for Jacob and Esau, before they were born, before they had done anything, God just said, the promise goes to Jacob. They'd done nothing. Not based on works. Purely on God's gracious electing call. Does that make it better for you? Are you more happy now? You know that truth? You're more cranky now. You're saying, what? It's not based on, but this person, God knew this person would be a better person or God, 
God waited to see how they, how they lived, how they responded to him and, and therefore made one. No! Before they were born, before they'd done anything good or bad, that God's purpose in election might, might be fulfilled. Namely, it's, it's, it's not by works, it's by my electing call I choose. So, that raises another question for you, doesn't it? Does, isn't that sort of a bit unfair of God? Isn't God somehow unrighteous by just disregarding works? Paul understands that that's your objection because that's where he goes next. You can see it there in verse 14. He says, What then shall we say? Is God unjust or, or unrighteous? Now, you know, if you've been following us long in the book of Romans, that word unrighteous, question about whether God is unrighteous or whether God is righteous, that's a big ticket item in Paul's letter to the Romans. Right? Go right back to chapter 1, verses 16, 17. Paul says the theme that I'm going to sort of expound in this letter is God's own personal righteousness. So, you're touching here on a key theme. And remember, the measure of God's righteousness I've put to you over the course of this year is the measure of God's righteousness here in the book of Romans is that God fulfills his good purposes, his intentions for his creation. That's the measure of his righteousness. So the question here is, if God is going to choose people by disre- with no respect to their works, isn't somehow God unrighteous? And his answer there in verse 14, he says, Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He says, no, it has never been from works. It has always been by God's gracious, God's gracious call. Verse 16, he says that. Right? You think, okay, alright, that's how God does it. God just, I mean, that sort of makes sense, right? Does anyone deserve God's mercy? You might like to think you do. You might think you're a pretty good person, but that's just because you're looking at every other person. We like to look sideways. I measure myself against you. I can see I'm a much more handsome person. (laughs) And guess what? I'm self-deceived, aren't I? Because you're much more handsome than me. And that's exactly what it's like. We look at each other and think, no, I'm a much better person. And we are entirely self-deceived. We look sideways instead of looking up. None of us deserve God's mercy. And yet, in his gracious, in his, in his unmerited kindness, God says, you know what? I will show mercy to you. If he did that just for one person, that would be to the praise of his glory, wouldn't it? That he's shown such undeserved kindness to, to even one. So you go, okay. It's never been by our effort. It's always just been God's mercy. But then Paul, bless him, <laughs> pours fuel on that. You think, okay, I'm sort of happy. No, no, no. Then look at what he says in verse 17. He says, for scripture says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, not a good guy, okay? Pharaoh, not a good guy. Back in Exodus. He says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, Paul concludes, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Well, I was happy while you were talking about mercy. That made sense to me. Now you're saying, okay, 
God actually has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, but actually he also hardens those who he wants to harden. I'm pretty cranky again. God doesn't just show mercy, he actually is hardening people. That's not very comfortable. But Paul is unashamed of the truth that God has revealed. And if you go back and read the Exodus story, you can see, yes, indeed, it records for us, yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So this raises a big question for us. And before we plough on to the, the third sort of part of Paul's answer, I want to have a brief interruption. And just say, what we're seeing here is a consistent biblical theme, what Paul's got to at this particular point. Namely, the theme is about God's absolute and unqualified sovereignty over all things. That's what Paul has in mind here. God's absolute unqualified sovereignty over all things. That is not a new thought here in the Scriptures. It is throughout the Scriptures. That's what God's sovereignty looks like. That's what it means. And where can you see this? You can see it in places, Old Testament and New Testament, places like Old Testament, Proverbs 16.9. In their hearts, human beings plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. You make plans, you make decisions, but the Lord has not, God has not said, you know, when it comes to human decisions, that's a no-go area for me, that I've sort of cut myself off from that. No, the Lord establishes your steps. We'll go to Ephesians chapter 1. Talking about God, according to the plan of him, that is God who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's who this God, the only God who truly exists, the Christian God, that's what he, who he is. He works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. Absolute, unqualified Sovereignty over all things. There is no no no-go area. Not one place of space, not one part of human life that God does not have this sort of sovereignty over. Does that raise a little bit of a question then for you? Think about where we start. We start about the, the Israelite nation. They had received these promises. What? They haven't received them. Why? Was it because God's word didn't come true? No, it did come true. It came true for those to whom he made the promise. But he's chosen some to be objects of mercy and he's chosen others to harden. So that then brings us back to Paul's argument in Romans 9. Why then, if this is who God is, that he has this sort of unqualified sovereignty, Why does God still blame us for unbelief? You followed so far? You've got to this point in the argument? Right. Now, so we've pushed the question, haven't we, with Paul? We've pushed the question, we've got an answer. We've pushed some more, got another answer. Now we're really, why does then God blame us? If he really has this sovereignty, what's the answer, Paul? He says three things. Three things. First thing he says, who are you to talk back? 
a friend of mine described it this morning as we were chatting about Romans 9. He said, here's the brick wall. You push and you push and you push and, and there's a bit of a brick wall. It's not entirely a brick wall because we'll see that in a moment, but there's a bit of a brick wall. Or another way of thinking, I think what Paul's saying is, watch out, be careful here before you start contradicting God, before you start accusing God of something, you're on holy ground here. You're on holy ground. Just be careful. So that's the first thing. Just be careful. You're talking about the one true living God. Second thing though, he says, doesn't the Creator have the right to do as He pleases? With the answer being, well, yes, He is. He's the Creator. He has that right. You can see this uh, if you look to verse 21, or actually halfway through verse 20. He says, Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for disposal of refuse? Can't the potter just, he gets a lump of clay delivered, he, can, he chooses what to do with it. He's going to make some for honourable purposes, purposes and some for dishonourable. The creator has the right. So if God is the creator has chosen some to be objects of mercy and others to be hardened, he has the right as a creator to do it. Still doesn't really answer our question though. Isn't that, is that really fair? Like is, why does he still then blame us? But then we come to Paul's third answer and I think this is key. This is verses 22 to 24 and often as people work through this chapter, this is a bit, that gets a bit confusing so you tend to skip over it because it's confusing but actually this is the bit that I think really starts to hold it together. Part of the reason it's confusing is when Paul wrote this, he wrote it, and, um, it's, he started with an if, an if statement. He said, you know, it's like, what if God did this and this and this and this and this and you're expecting a then, right? If this is true, then there is no then. Paul, I think, got carried away or something. He started a sentence and literally does not finish it. <laughs> he gets so carried away with the if, he powers on the clauses and he doesn't end it. Now, so you've sort of got to work out, well, I think that then is, if he's done this, 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 this and this, well, well okay, then, then okay, then that sort of answers the question. That's actually what it says. What's the if? What, what's, what's the big thing? He says, well, I think what Paul tries to say as we look at verses 22, let's read it first. He says, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction, and what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. That's his answer. <laughs> right, that made sense to you? What he then does in the next couple of verses, 25-29, is he supports his answer with verses from the Old Testament. I'll leave you to chase that up. Let's just pull apart his answer. I think what he's saying, if I put it into my words, is this. He's saying... You say, why then does God still blame us? His answer is, don't throw your hands up in despair. Actually, God's being patient with you. What he's saying is, yes, God is absolutely sovereign. Yes, there are some who he has decided in his his gracious election to be objects of mercy and others, yes, who he hardens. But you don't know and I don't know who they are. Everyone falls into one of those categories but, but none of us know who they are. You can't access that information. No one can. 
But what God has done is in his great patience, rather than those who are hardened, who deserve his wrath, rather than them experiencing his wrath now, which would be just and fair, God has decided to be patient so that those who are objects of his mercy might hear the gospel of Jesus and turn in faith and repentance and be saved. Now, the thing is, you or I, we don't know who those people are. We will never know until the final day, actually, who those people are in the final accounting. But God is being patient. So I think what he's saying is, you, you don't just go, well, who could, how can he blame us? Oh, well, it's all in his hands, like my friend did. Actually, he says, no, no, this is about God being patient with you. And uh, this is what Paul has actually already said earlier. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 4, you'll see that he talks about, he says, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness and patience. And you can find other places in the New Testament as well. 2 Peter chapter 3, you'll see a similar idea. Okay, so I think this is Paul's answer. This is part of Paul's answer. So the question then for us is, having sort of worked through that as I rush towards the end, let's have another brief interruption. Let's just think about what you're seeing here, I think. Paul, though he's majoring on God's sovereignty, he opens a bit of a window here because what he's saying is, God actually is being patient with you so that the gospel might be preached so that people can make a faith decision in Jesus. That's what needs to happen. So he's opening the window here onto another consistent biblical theme, namely humanity's real responsibility for the decisions and choices we make. This is another key theme of the whole scripture which often we diminish by focusing on God's sovereignty. We can't handle both these truths, so we just stick with God's sovereignty often. Though some people can't handle both truths and they just grab onto this one. It's a problem both ways. You have to hold both. You can see this uh, here in the book of Romans that he talks about this theme, chapter 2, 1 to 11, he talks about how people are going to be judged for what they have done, for the way they have lived. That makes sense because we are genuine moral agents. We really make decisions and it's right to be held accountable for it. You are not a robot. You are not a cartoon where someone before him says, and then at 2.25 he eats a cupcake. (laughs) You are not a cartoon. You make real decisions and God holds us accountable for them. You can see it all through the scripture. It is from the fall where Adam and Eve reject the word of God. It is there in the death of Jesus when the people say his, the blood for his death be on us and our children. They assume responsibility for Jesus' death. Hold us accountable for it. We don't care. And it's all the way there through the book of Revelation. People are held accountable for what they have done. Now, at this point, you go, now I'm cranky with you, Rowan. (laughs) You can't say both these things. How do you hold these true truths together? I want to suggest to you that you need to hold both together with a view that's known as compatibilism. (laughs) Right? Compatibilism is not about you finding a special friend who you'll be (laughs) compatible with. Compatibilism is about holding these two truths together. First of all, 
you've, you've already met both these. We've talked about them all day, right? Here we go, well, for the last 20 minutes. First of all, God is absolutely sovereign, but, in his, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimised or mitigated. We saw that just then in Romans 9. At the same time, the scripture holds this truth. Human beings are morally responsible creatures. They significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions and they are rightly held accountable for such actions but this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent. It's not as though there's a no-go area for God. Sorry, I'm making the calls here. I'm making decisions. God has a keep-out sign. No, that's not how the Bible talks about it. It says, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, humans make real decisions. And they are both true. And neither cancels out the other. And you go, well, that doesn't make sense. And I say, well, that's just how it is under God. And guess what? In my finite mind, the little, my creaturely mind, I can't fathom all the truths of God. I graciously receive what he reveals. The secret things belong to the Lord, but his, what he has revealed belongs to us and our children. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And he says, this is the way it is, then I, will, I hold on to both of those truths. But there is a black box. There is a black box out of which come these two outputs that we hold both together, God's sovereignty, genuine human responsibility. We hold them both. But we don't see how they fit together inside the black box. That is, that is in the mind of God and the will of God and the way he's ordered his universe and it is a mystery. There is mystery at that point. And the danger is, and I mean, the thing is, you can see compatibilism right through the scripture. In Exodus... Sometimes it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart and other times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Was it they were taking turns? God has a turn, Pharaoh has a turn. God has a turn, no. They are both happening together. The Bible holds compatibilism, unashamedly. And there are numerous examples I could share with you later. You're seeing the same thing operating. The danger is, the danger is, we, like, we can't handle the truth, to quote a movie, and so we just grab hold of one of the outputs and say, that, I get that, and I'm going to diminish all the others. So say, God really has control, so therefore you don't really make choices. You think you do, but really, we know, that's just elevating one and diminishing the other. Or you move the other way and you say, well, look, God just chooses those who he knows are going to choose him. Which really is to elevate your free decision. God has a no-go. He just reacts to... Do you see what I'm saying? You elevate one, diminish the other. No, don't do that. That's just for, that's bad Bible reading. That's forming a grid and filtering out truth. You have to hold both. So, the danger of selective grid formation... How do we hold these truths? Trying to look inside the box, trying to get inside the black box, how they fit together? I don't think you should. I think you need, at some point, you push as far as God's word reveals and then you acknowledge there is mystery in humility. Now, Packer, Jim Packer has a great line on that. He says, as a fact of creation, as an aspect of our humanness, our free agency, that is the power of spontaneous, self-determining choice, it exists 
as all created things do in God. How God sustains it, this free agency, how he overrules it without overriding it, it is his secret. But that he does so is certain. We push as far as God's word allows and then we acknowledge humbly mystery. Uh, I think the other thing to do here then is how do we actually respond to this? How do we move ahead with this? Well, take your lead from the Apostle Paul. Having just talked about these deep truths of God, does he just say so? I guess it's all up to God. No, no. Genuine human agency as well. And if you look at what he does in chapter 10 and 11, talking about the, his people, the Israelite nation, he, he, is, he perseveres in prayer for them and he is passionate in proclaiming the gospel to them. So, whoever the elect are, he doesn't know whoever they are so that they can make a genuine decision for Christ and be saved. So, it's not to throw your hands up, it's persevere in prayer and be passionate in proclaiming Christ. And as I said before, the reality is that you will only know on the final day who the elect are, who are the objects of his mercy. It is those who persevere in faith to the end who are finally saved. But then that truth, and I just want to acknowledge this, that truth is unsettling for some. Some say, well, I've responded to faith in Christ, to Christ in faith. How do I know that I'm elect though? How, how do I really, how do I know that I'll be persevered to last? Maybe I'm not elect, maybe I'm self-deceived on this. Well, I want to go to Calvin, actually, John Calvin there. And what, what he says is this. He says, look to Jesus. If you're troubled by this truth, look to Jesus. Christ, he says, is the mirror wherein we must, and without self-deception we may, contemplate our own election. We have a sufficiently clear and firm testimony that we have been inscribed in the book of life if we are in communion with Christ. Now, he gave us that sure communion with himself when he testified through the preaching of the gospel that he had been given to us by the Father to be ours with all his benefits. What he's saying is, in the announcement of the gospel is that if you have faith in Jesus, then you are united to Jesus. And you have, you have all those glorious promises of Romans chapter 8, they come to you by God's grace because you are of faith in Jesus. And he says so, you can be sure you have sure communion with Christ when you come to him in faith, he will keep his word to you. See, your assurance comes from the same place that your faith does. You look to Jesus and trust his promise. I entrust myself to you, Jesus. And and again tomorrow, and I just, I just entrust myself to you each and every day. I walk on as I begin, knowing that you will keep your promise to me. In fact, the uh, 39 articles, Article 17 says, actually when you start thinking about the doctrine of predestination in this way, in its relation to the security we have in Jesus, it is a comforting doctrine, a sweet doctrine. The godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. Why? You you have faith in Jesus. Praise God for that. And guess what? You have faith in Jesus, which means you are one of his children, which means he had you in mind in Christ from before you were born, from before the creation of the world. 
he holds you that strong. What a PM. <laughs> what glorious truth. So let's just keep thinking about it. Let's keep praising God for it. Let's keep dwelling on it and have it shape and inform us. So I'm going to pray for us as we head out and go to afternoon tea. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths. Please, in all humility, humility, Lord, we pray you would give us the minds from your spirit to understand them, that we may take comfort in the truths that you have revealed, and we may live life full of trust and faith in you and in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.